This episode contains mature subject matter including assault, rape, and murder. Viewer discretion is advised. On October 3, 1984, nine-year-old Christine Jessup was dropped off at her home in Queensville, Ontario from her school bus with both of her parents out. She was last seen by the owner of a nearby convenience store where she had gone to buy bubblegum. Her body was discovered on December 31st, nearly three months later. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Hello everyone, thank you for coming back to Not Always Polite. Today we are discussing the- oh my god, do you hear these dogs? I'm literally sitting outside in my boyfriend's dad's backyard and his cousin's dog is here and they are going ham, so let me try that again. Like I was saying, thank you for coming back to episode 4. Today we are discussing the case of Christine Jessup and subsequently Guy Paul Morin. This case has been in the news recently as I'm doing this research, um, October 2020, so I figured this would be a perfect time to share it with all of you. So let's get into the case. On a Wednesday afternoon in October 1984, Christine had planned to meet a friend after school. Instead, she came home, dropped off her bag, and went to a nearby convenience store, and she was never heard from again. When Christine's mother, Janet, arrived home with her older brother, Kenny, after a dentist appointment, they realized that Christine was nowhere to be found. They looked around for Christine, and when they couldn't find her, they started calling her friends. And then Janet, her mother, began to feel a sense of dread, so she called the police. Quote, you know something in the back of your mind when you can't find them right away. You know something's not right, she said. The next day, a massive hunt was underway. It seemed like the entire town came out to scour Queensville and the fields around it. What searchers couldn't know was that Christine was no longer nearby. Almost three months later, on New Year's Eve of 1984, Christine's partially decomposed body was found in a field near Sunderland in Durham region, about 56 kilometers east of Queensville. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times. Once again, much of the town turned out, this time for Christine's funeral. She was buried in the cemetery next to the Jessup's home. Now, this is where things get kind of messy. The location where Christine's body was found meant that it fell to Durham Regional Police to investigate. They weren't having much luck at first, but a few weeks later, Janet Jessup mentioned the neighbor guy, Guy Paul Morin, and told the police he was a, quote, weird type guy. What Janet didn't know is that this statement made to police would change the life of her neighbor forever, and not only that, this would direct the case in a whole new direction. Guy Paul Morin lived with his parents right next door to the Jessups. The 24-year-old worked as a furniture stander and played clarinet in the community band. He didn't know Christine or her family well, but police interviewed him and secretly collected a sample of hair. A forensic specialist at the time deemed the hair, quote, microscopically similar to a hair found in the necklace on Christine's body. Now, remember that this was back in the 80s where forensic science was not as advanced as it is today, and their abilities to test DNA were lacking. This would be detrimental to Morin's case. Police suspicions grew. They had the FBI construct a profile of the killer. That was, to police, a description that fit Morin. With that and the other evidence, Morin was arrested in April of 1985. He maintained his innocence, but was put on trial for murder in January of 1986. In a London, Ontario courtroom, the Crown brought forward the hair evidence and fibers found on Christine's clothes. Prosecutors constructed a timeline to give Morin the opportunity to kidnap Christine after he got off work and before Janet got home. 
There was also stunning testimony from two cellmates who swore Morin confessed to the crime while in custody. An undercover police officer told the court that Morin, while in jail, claimed to red rum the innocent. Um, For those who don't know, red rum is murder spelled backwards. Morin's defense lawyer, Clayton Ruby, challenged the credibility of the jail cell informants. He called in experts who disputed the forensic evidence, and he maintained that Morin simply did not have time to kidnap Christine because he got groceries after work. So did something that caught many by surprise. He introduced psychiatric evidence that his client was schizophrenic. It was Ruby's way to explain some of the unusual way Morin spoke, including the expression, quote, red rum the innocent. In the end, Ruby told the jury there simply wasn't enough convincing evidence to convict his client. And almost two years after police first interviewed him, the jury found Morin not guilty. It was a crushing verdict for the Jessops. Christine's father, Robert, was bitterly disappointed. Quote, You get damn mad is what you get because you feel the system let you down, he said. It was a letdown for police and prosecutors as well. If anything, the unchallenged evidence that Morin was schizophrenic only seemed to confirm their belief that Morin was the right suspect and that the jury got it all wrong. Okay, let's pause and talk about that for a quick sec. I know that in the 80s, the mental health system was essentially non-existent, but I'm really glad that the jury didn't convict Morn of this murder simply because he was schizophrenic. Just because someone has schizophrenia or any other mental illness does not make them a murderer, and I'm really glad that the jury and the judge saw that in this case. But unfortunately, Morin's run with the judicial system wouldn't end there. The Crown appealed the verdict. The Ontario Court of Appeal found fault in the judge's trial instructions to the jury, and a new trial was ordered. It gave the Jessops new hope for justice, but for Morin, it meant his ordeal was not over yet. At Morin's second trial, much of the same evidence was produced. The hair and fibers, the alleged jail cell confessions, and the timeline, giving Morin the opportunity to take Christine. Morin's lawyer, this time Jack Pinkowski, sorry Jack, like Ruby before him, countered and questioned all of the evidence, but this time the jury found Morin guilty. Stunned, Morin blurted out in court, I am not guilty of this crime. Pinkowski, clearly shaken, stated, Today an innocent man was found guilty. And yet, almost eight years after their daughter disappeared, the Jessops believed the verdict had brought justice at long last. Finally, someone has paid for Christine, said Janet. The guilty one has paid for Christine's murder. Robert Jessop said, The only consolation of the whole affair is that it's finally put to rest. And maybe Christine can rest in peace. Two trials, two different verdicts. Now it was Morin's defenders who would seek an appeal. But before that could happen, a new and extraordinary piece of evidence would turn this case upside down one final time. A tiny bit of DNA from Christine's clothing changed everything. The science of DNA testing was not available when Christine's body was found in 1984. But a decade later, a sample could finally be extracted that proved Morin was not the killer. His conviction was overturned, and Morin was freed. I did not kill Christine Jessup, he said. It's as simple as that. And finally, as I said, DNA has exonerated me 100%.
It was an incredible moment in Canadian judicial history because it was clear that something in the criminal justice system had gone terribly wrong. Morin had spent close to two years in prison and lived for 10 years through legal uncertainty and the stigma of a terrible crime he had not committed. The Ontario government called for a major public inquiry. Justice Fred Kaufman posed this essential question at the jury's inquiry opening. How and why did the administration of justice fail in this instance? And how can such a failure be prevented in the future? The inquiry would last 10 months. 120 witnesses were called. Detectives, prosecutors, forensic specialists, even the jailhouse informants, and the Jessops, Janet and Christine's brother Ken, both testified. By now, however, the Jessops had come full circle. They no longer believed their neighbor was guilty, and they too wanted answers from the judicial system. One critical piece of information was the time that Janet and Ken arrived home the day Christine disappeared. They had actually first told the police it was 4.10 p.m. Police determined that Morin could not have gone to the home from work until 4.15, so they suggested to the Jessops that they may have gotten home later. Both Janet and Ken changed the time, thus preserving the police theory that Morin had the opportunity to take Christine. Had the police not convinced Janet to change her story, Morin would have never had to go through all this, and it would have been significantly different in the long run. Janet thought she really did get home at 4.10 p.m., but she told the inquiry, You're believing the police and the authorities. You're told this for so many years that, well, maybe you were wrong. They're professionals. It was now summer 1997, and the chief of the Durham Regional Police, Trevor McGarity, offered Morin, quote, a full, unequivocal, and unconditional apology for our mistakes which led to his wrongful conviction. Judge Kaufman concluded that what occurred were, quote, serious errors in judgment, often resulting from a lack of objectivity rather than outright malevolence. Kaufman also said that the case was not unique. Indeed, Morin's exoneration had followed recent revelations of the wrongful convictions of Donald Marshall in Nova Scotia and David Milgard in Saskatchewan. Together, the three men are known as the three M's, Milgard, Marshall, and Morin inspired the creation of an organization known today as Innocence Canada, which investigates wrongful convictions in Canada. This was just one change that came after the inquiry. Finding the person who killed her daughter is all Janet Jessup has wanted for more than 35 years. Hey there, looking for a new true crime podcast to listen to? Well then check out Murder Vibes, Hosted by Canadian best friends Kira and Angela, Murder Vibes covers underreported cases and crimes that are generally not covered by the true crime community. Episodes are released every Wednesday, so make sure you're ready to listen and maybe even help solve a case. Fast forward to October of 2020, 36 years after Christine was killed. With the advancement of genealogical testing, as I mentioned in episode one, they were able to retest the semen stain found on Christine's body from all the way back in 1985. In case you missed episode one, genealogical testing is defined as, quote, forensic genealogy is the emerging practice of utilizing genetic information from direct-to-consumer companies like 23andMe or Ancestry for identifying suspects or victims in criminal cases. 
Superintendent Peter Code stated, quote, What we do is we start with an unidentified semen stain that has a DNA profile to it. This is submitted to a lab, and from that profile, they build out a potential familial lineage. And it's from that lineage that the investigators then work downwards to be able to try to identify potential persons of interest. The name Calvin Hoover is one of the names that came up in two specific families that we saw. Upon review of the investigative file, Hoover is a name that we had known to have a connection to the Jessup family, Code said. Simply put, it is not a DNA match. What it is, is it provides a potential, and I must stress a potential family lineage from a DNA sample. It is then up to a police investigator to build from that potential family lineage, Code continued. Further testing determined that the DNA belonged to Calvin Hoover. Toronto Police Chief James Brammer identified Calvin Hoover as Jessup's murderer. He was 28 at the time of the case, and he died in 2015. Kenny Jessup, Christine's brother, told Global News the family is, quote, feeling stunned but happily stunned after hearing the news. He said they are all experiencing the seven stages of grief. Kenny said that the suspect died by suicide a few years ago, in 2015, and was a friend of the family. The alleged killer's wife was their father's co-worker. Oof, that was quite a ride. I am so thankful that the Jessup family finally has closure in knowing who killed Christine. Although I can imagine they have a lot of unanswered questions because he ended his life before they could get any answers. In my opinion, he got off easy. I feel like it would be much more satisfying if he would have gone through the court system and had to face the music for what he did. I'm sure the family really just wants to know why he did what he did, and unfortunately that's something they'll never be able to get an answer to. Regardless, he can't hurt anyone anymore, and the family now knows the truth about who hurt their daughter. Tune in next week for episode 4, and don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at NotAlwaysPolite for sneak peeks and images relating to the cases I'm discussing. Have a great week, and remember to stay safe.